Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. We here at the podcast are hoping everyone is still faring okay during this time of the pandemic. And we hope that if there's anyone you know who is sick, that they make a full and speedy recovery. We're thinking about all of you. And I also want to make sure to do a special shout out. I want to thank everyone again for all of your support and being able to go to patreon.com slash indoctrination and offer whatever you can by way of support each month. It's so incredibly helpful. In fact, beyond helpful, it's necessary. It's absolutely necessary for us to be able to keep this on the air for all the people who rely on being able to hear this each week, who have it, as they say, as their therapy, or to pass along to people who they feel it really will be instrumental for and be able to help them through a very difficult time or after a very difficult time. So I'm so happy that so many of you have partnered with me, either financially or by getting the word out and telling other people about it. Let me do a shout out for the people who give $10 or more a month. Thank you so much to Alex, Anne and Richard, Brianna, Camus, Christina, Donna, James, Jessica, Katrina, Ken, Lillian, Linda, Ludwig, Maureen, Michael, Mislav, Peter and Cynthia, Scott, Sylvia and Bert, and Sophia. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Today on the show, we have Kelly Weil. Kelly is a reporter at The Daily Beast, where she covers disinformation, internet culture, and the far right. She's currently at work on a book about the Flat Earth Movement, forthcoming from Algonquin Books, so keep an eye out for it. I can't wait to read it when it comes out. We've had a couple of very interesting conversations, and I'm so happy you're going to be able to hear from her today. Here's Kelly now. So I am so happy to have Kelly Weil on the show today. It is truly an honor to be able to talk to someone who has had so much information put out there for everyone to be able to access, and they have accessed quite a bit of it. Um, millions of people. So that's a that's an impressive feat. And I know that part of why we wanted to talk today is about some of the things that you've been reporting, some of the things you're working on, and your insights, because you have dealt with a lot of subjects that I deal with in my work. And from a journalistic point of view, I'd love to be able to hear how you approach those subjects and what the feedback has been with the kind of uh, conspiracy theories, social contagion around that, you know, some of the things that you've noticed. So welcome. If you would like to just introduce yourself, feel free, and then we'll start our discussion. Hey, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I am a reporter at The Daily Beast, where I cover a lot of um, disinformation, conspiracy culture, all that stuff going on on the internet. And then I'm also working on a book on the flat earth movement and conspiracy culture at large. So I've been honed in there for a little while. Yes, right. So I'm curious, I'm always curious about this, but I'm curious what your interest is in this. I come at it from just being interested in human psychology, social psychology. Um, So I'm wondering what drew you to these subjects? I spent a lot of time online as a teenager in my formative years. So I think I saw some of the emerging ecosystems when they were a bit younger. Um, I spent probably too much time on the chans. And it's been really interesting watching this disinformation ecosystem sort of evolve and take the shape that we recognize today. So I've sort of seen, you know, Gamergate take place and how that informs um, our current harassment culture, how that informs certain paranoias people have right now. So it's something I kind of watched when I was um, just figuring out my beat and kind of grown with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is quite amazing to see also how the facelessness of the internet has uh, sometimes brought out people's most base instincts. And uh, I think because they don't have to 
face someone in the hallway or at work or wherever else. They can just be cruel behind the screen or behind the scenes. So there are a lot of people who get so harassed that they feel like uh, they, they get suicidal. They feel like they can't quite function. And I'm wondering about that before we talk about flat earthers and others, but what about the harassment culture? What spurs that on and typically, and what's spurring that on now? A lot of harassment culture, I think, comes when people feel under attack, uh, not always justifiably, but movements like Gamergate, which uh, a lot of men, a lot of young white men feel harassed by the specter of feminism, which they thought was coming to ruin video games, which is what they love. And of course, it's kind of a stand-in for their fraught relationships with women, probably. But they felt under attack as a group, and they took that and they channeled it through. Um, there were subreddits and forums and all kinds of things that they could funnel this angst into really just shocking harassment of individual women. So that kind of brings people in when they believe that they actually have a grievance. And we see that a lot now with white supremacists, people who are using forums to shape their views on these forums. They might have, you know, kind of nebulous bigotry, and then they go and they read very specific conspiracy theories or just hateful ideology. Um, and they go from there to actively targeting the people that they believe are targeting them. I find it so interesting that some of these groups that I think at another time may have been more fringe have managed to legitimize themselves in people's eyes. And I, I'm curious what you think about that and how they've gone about kind of substantiating themselves to make them seem credible and their information credible. Yeah. One thing I've noticed a lot over the past couple of years are very fringe conspiracy groups or very fringe hate groups finding some kernel of truth that they share with a lot more people um, and using that as an entry point. So one thing is I monitor a lot of uh, conspiracy Facebook groups and one is uh, chemtrails and that's pretty fringe in itself, but a lot of folks who aren't full on off the deep end still are interested in chemtrails or because they're interested in, you know, what they believe are, um, you know, pollutants or impurities in their food. It, I feel like there's a lot of entry points to that. But something I've noticed in chemtrail groups actually are people who support a white supremacist podcast going in and dropping links to a podcast that's from that network that talks about chemtrails. Mm -hmm. So you get sort of, there's a spectrum of fringe, right? And you get people from the absolute fringiest of the fringe, very deliberately making entry uh, points with more moderate places um, on that spectrum because they do have some crossover appeal. So it's a very concerted effort that these groups are doing to recruit people and to just draw them further out from the mainstream. And as soon as they can get them farther out from the mainstream, then from what I've seen in my work, then they have uh, much more overall control because then there really uh, is that connection that they've been sort of brought into sort of this, this, the secret room in the back and they, they feel special. Uh, and also that then I think you're so far down the rabbit hole that it's hard to kind of get back. And I think sometimes people also really feel like it's keeping them safe. So is a lot of this from what you've seen about safety? I think so. And I think for some people, it's also about status within that community. I've talked to people who have left alt-right online circles. And one thing is that there's, um, for some people, a pressure to produce content, to be contributing to that circle. So they put something out there, you know, video propagating um, a far-right talking point. And then because they're already out there and they have their name and face attached to this, they keep going. They want to keep participating in that community, to keep getting that positive feedback they get from the community. And it's very hard to extricate yourself from that when you link your persona to it. So that's, yeah, it's kind of a self-perpetuating phenomenon where people stay in because they've already gone so far. Yeah. So sometimes when I ask people what made them stay in a particular cult group for as long as they did, especially I will ask that. 
if they said they were unhappy for a long time or if they're questioning it for a long time. Some of it is that, you know, I've, I've spent so much time or so much money or I've abandoned the rest of my life for this. I'm not ready to turn my back on this because then it would be an admission that this was all a mistake. And it would mean having to go back into the world that I'm now been made to feel either afraid of or superior to. Mm-hmm. It's, I think, very difficult to re-enter the mainstream sometimes after participating in these circles because they, they're so openly antagonistic toward the mainstream. Mm-hmm. If someone's parroting alt-right talking points, that's uh, pretty hostile to most people in their right minds, I think. Mm-hmm. So to come back from that, I think you can reasonably expect some um, some criticism and some blowback. And the people I've spoken to who've changed their ways after doing that have all said, you know, it was tough. I don't know anybody who's done it who's come back and regrets coming back, um, but it is obviously a pretty tough transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And, and what I... I'm curious about this. If you've met people within the community, I'm assuming that you've interacted with some, and I'm I'm wondering what those interactions were like. Just as an aside, I was one time doing uh, a, a prep meeting for a potential intervention to help a family. And one of the members of the family turned to me as though he were just saying kind of a random thing. And he said, listen, during the break, I'd love to be able to find out from you. uh, Well, first, let me ask, you're Jewish, right? And I was thinking Rachel Bernstein, you know, like, what was your first clue? But uh, he said, so I just, I was curious, you know, when everyone's getting coffee, can you tell me why the Jews started the slave trade and why they started World War II and the Nazi movement? Was it to kind of thin the herd? And then he got up and got coffee. And I thought, he just said that to me, like that was perfectly fine. And he wants to actually have a conversation about that with me. Where do I even begin? That's not a conversation because that's, that's a lot of horribleness that just flew out of his mouth. That's also not true. But he said it with n- not trying to kind of even mm, get my goat, but just because it was fact and he wanted some clarification. I found this so startling mostly because of the presentation, the very calm presentation of it. Like this is a real conversation we're going to have and I can help explain those things to him. I'd never heard those things before. And then he showed me books that he had and sites that, you know, that propagate all of this. So I'm sure you've heard some of these stories. I'm wondering first, have you met people within these communities? Oh, yes. So um, this is something that's actually hampered the writing of my book because I think the Flat Earth movement has become more anti-Semitic since I started writing it. Mm. It's something that I have perceived, I think, through a lot of conspiracy culture right now. I don't know if it's just because I'm becoming more attuned to it. I'm looking for it more, but I really do think there is a pretty notable lurch into that conspiracy theory. There are a lot of them. But it's sort of, I mean, when we talk about anti-Semitism as a conspiracy theory, it's a really long-running one. I mean, in Europe, you know, hundreds of years, when people got sick, speaking about, you know, mass outbreaks, people wouldn't blame germs, which they didn't really understand, but they would blame Jews for poisoning the water well. And so, I mean, it's kind of been a centuries-long scapegoating. But you can find anti-Semitism in all kinds of conspiracy culture. I remember um, two years ago at a Flat Earth conference, flipping through a book that someone was selling and they were, you know, one chapter open with the Jews, of course, you know, like it's total fact, control the uh, the education systems to brainwash your children, yada, yada. And then, you know, this year I went to another Flat Earth conference, now sort of expecting to run into this. And I tried to engage some people about that because. Um, One side of my family is Jewish, so I wanted to, in some conversations, say, you know, here I am. You know, I'm not behind any of these crazy conspiracies, you believe. And it was an interesting conversation to have with some folks, because I think when you're speaking with people face-to-face, often they can acknowledge your humanity. But at the same time, you have to wonder, you know, what do they secretly believe of you? And it's very interesting, like you said, having someone state those conspiracy theories as facts, but also 
recognize you as an individual enough to want to speak to you about them and get, you know, just your, your take on them. So it's been a little bit jarring and I do worry about what I see as an overall trend toward that. Uh, so, yeah. So let's stay on that for a moment. I'm now remembering. Wow. I'm now remembering when I first went to college, I was in Boston and I was meeting my new roommate and we're setting things up in the room. And then she turned to me and she said, well, I, I just want to clear the air um, that I wanted to let you know that I have forgiven your people for killing my Lord. And I thought, this is not going to go well. <laughs> like, I don't even know your last name yet. But uh, wow. So I said, well, let's talk about Because I thought if we're going to live together, I want to kind of let her know that crucifixion was not the Jewish way of killing people and putting them to death. That was the Roman way and, 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 but whatever. But I could see as I started talking to her, there was this sort of glazing over because she was, she knew the truth, quote unquote. And so I like that you've been to some of these places and they've wanted to engage you. That's actually a really good step because I could see there was this wall that came down when I tried to explain, which Jews have been trying to explain for thousands of years and has been the source of a lot of anti-Semitism and killing and things. And I think she was just expecting me to say thanks. Uh, you know, that's really big of you that you forgive me for this thing. Uh, Anyway, so going back, why do you think there is that drive now? Or why is there that connection between some of these uh, conspiracy theories and, and kind of subcultures uh, and, and sub-subcultures where there's anti-Semitism, racism, whatever it is? I have a lot of sort of disparate observations and theories here. So I'm not sure if I can present like a full theory of it. but. So if I just address everything through the flat earth lens, modern flat earthism, the way we think of it, it wasn't, you know, going on during the uh, Christopher Columbus years. People had pretty much accepted the globe by then. It actually started um, around 1840s with this one guy in the UK. And for about 100 years, there wasn't any very notable anti-Semitic component mm -hmm. to flat earthism. It came in and out. So that's something that's interesting to me is that for a while, this conspiracy theory managed just fine without much anti-Semitism that I can find in my research. It's only when in the past couple decades, I think, that it's merged with broader conspiracy culture that it's taken on that tinge. And why I think that is, is conspiracy culture, um, you know, emerging, God, you know, post-war, it started invoking certain big brother types or things that could act as a stand-in for any kind of shadowy minority group. And unfortunately, we have centuries of coding that as the Jews. So we started seeing organizations like the John Birch Society. Um, using this language, we started seeing the terminology that we understand now as a, the, quote, new world order. So there were then these um, blank spaces that conspiracy theorists could insert their um, their villain of choice. And that could be the Illuminati, although we don't hear about it quite so much anymore. Um, and, you know, because there was this rich culture, for lack of a better word, of blaming the Jews. Mm -hmm. So I'm seeing more and more people actually resurfacing quite old conspiracy texts people pulling up the protocols of the uh, elders of Zion, which is, oh, yeah. you know, a century old, complete fabricated text that was used to accuse, you know, Jews of plotting world domination. So I'm actually seeing new conspiracy theorists going back to this old well of material until fairly recently. I think people discussed conspiracy culture as something a bit jokier, like, oh, haha, the Illuminati. And now it's losing that abstract tone and really homing in on a, an old villain. Um, so that's something that I, I'm seeing more anti-Semitism. That's my theory of what's going on. Very interesting. Very interesting. I, I want also to have you talk about the disinformation. There, there is so much information out there. Of course, there's going to be a lot of disinformation around, you know, whenever there is trouble in the world, when you know, we're dealing with a virus, et cetera. 
there are a lot of magic cures. There's a lot of finger pointing, but why we're experiencing this. There are a lot of people who also feel like they're going to remain safe if they get or if they engage in these kinds of communities. I'm curious for you about this disinformation and from what you've seen, how would people know if what they're getting or close to it as possible is accurate? What do they need to look for? That's really difficult right now because so much of the disinformation is coming from the top. We had a couple of weeks ago, President Trump uh, touting a drug that has not been really clinically tested. Um, it might work in a combination with other medications, again, limited testing. But immediately after that, prices for that drug skyrocketed because people believed him, went out, stopped up on and now people who actually need the drug, people who are um, living with lupus, have a harder time finding it. Oh, no. So, um, so that's just one element of it. It's really, I think, difficult to tell right now um, what is good information. I think if people see a um, some kind of medical claim, mm-hmm. you can go out and you can see if there's a study backing it up. Um, and again, because of this is so new, everything's very preliminary. Um, but there are other instances, like recently someone um, published a video purporting to show a lot of body bags being delivered to New York City. Now, obviously, New York City is having a massive problem with um, mass death and it's escalating. But what people started pointing out in that video was the text on the body bags. And it was, I believe, in Italian. It was an old video um, from another country. Oh, wow. So you can do some rudimentary fact-checking on your own. And there are websites. Um, Snopes is, you know, an old standby that is doing the work of debunking. And it's coming, you know, fast and furious right now. But there are still media organizations that are trying to make some sense out of this. Right. It's a little like the Wild West. Like, there's just so much out there. And you just have to Expect that the, at some point they're just going to be, you know, horses coming through a gun battle, whatever. It just feels like a free for all in terms of information, uh, and uh, and it's hard, especially when it's pivotal information in terms of safety or life or death. So I think because you've met people and you've done a lot of research, do you have a kind of a, a top ten list of kind of the most out there things that you've had to deal with? And I and I say this also knowing that you've probably become a little desensitized because of how much you've been exposed to that probably what strikes you is out there. Uh, it would have to take a lot probably at this point for it to register in that way. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult because you can log on to Facebook right now. You don't have to be like someone who's been researching this for years. You can personally go on and you can find absolutely the most bizarre fictional conspiracy theory you could possibly want. So often what really jars me is not the content of the conspiracy theory because so many of them are so out there. You know, I'm writing a whole book on flat earth um, and I have a lot of things I need to cut. Um, But what jars me are the interactions with people who believe it Um, because some of them are so normal and they're nice people and they have jobs that you're like, you're a school teacher. Okay. I think one one standout one um, is I... 2018 at a flat earth conference during those terrible California wildfires. And there were two women there who were, they couldn't go back to their homes because there was an evacuation order. They're like, yeah, maybe our homes melted. We have family we can't get in touch with. And these, I I don't want to denigrate these women at all. Extremely nice people looking Mm -hmm. for community. Mm -hmm. And they were just at a flat earth conference. They're like, you know, this is kind of helping being around other people who share our beliefs. I'm like, you're, home and your family and so that is upsetting <laughs> but you know I've um yeah same conference had a nice breakfast with the family who told me you know Sandy Hook wasn't real druids are real um so yeah I think it is the interactions with people and it's the realizing um once you come out from a screen where you can guess that the person behind it is crazy but when you actually meet them in real life it's often you know someone that you could get along with very well that you can see a lot of yourself in and it's just like huh we are having a very normal conversation about something that is so out there so I think that's what's really startled me more than you know learning that Obama is a Martian or what have you 
Oh, oh, I didn't realize he was. Good to know. Good. That explains a lot. Not. Uh, okay. So uh, I don't mean to. I don't mean to make fun because I know that there are a lot of people who believe in a lot of these ideas, and they will share them, in, in part because, uh, like you're saying, kind of out of the kindness of their heart, very genuine place. Um, but it seems like when you were talking about the wildfires that, that there at this conference, there is a disconnect and emotional or just not having to worry about the things that other people worry about? Have you found that they're kind of behaving like they're on an island unto themselves? Oh my goodness, yes. So one of the most upsetting things I've seen regarding coronavirus was there's a conspiracy theory called QAnon. It's one of my absolute least favorites. Um, People just, they believe in all kinds of just nonsense to whatever degree they want to take it. And I saw um, a researcher about this post a screenshot of people saying, have you noticed that no one who believes in QAnon is getting coronavirus? That must mean we're protected. And it's, it's, you can see this thing acting as a shield for people who need it to be that. And it's just, it's terrifying to me because a lot of people in the QAnon community are a little bit older, uh, so they're more susceptible. Uh, and it's, and just an absolute disregard of facts. And it's it's deadly, you know. I can joke about flat earth sometimes because with the exception of someone who just blew himself up in a rocket, you know, trying to go up and photograph the curve or lack thereof, most people don't die from flat earth, but people can die based on their response to something like coronavirus. So disinformation has a really obvious effect there. So QAnon is very interesting and I think people should research it um, because there are other groups like it and some just take hold. I mean, sometimes they just have good PR or they have really charismatic people who are help uh, guiding their way uh, or they get a lot of funding so they can be out there in large groups, et cetera. But yes, when it, it does give you this false correlation that you are safe because you are a member of this or because of that, uh, then it does get actually very dangerous. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and in terms of the danger, with the writing that you've done and the research and the things that have come out that you've published, have you dealt with harassment? Oh, yeah. I also write about white supremacists. So some of the most blatant stuff of that has been via them. QAnon has been a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to make my Instagram private because people were going in and writing about like satanic cannibalism under my wedding pictures, uh, which was, I mean... I, I have a pretty thick skin. I don't take much of it to heart because I know that that's not real, but it's like, come on, you guys. Like, what do you think you're doing? So it's been it's been a recurring feature. Um, and I think a lot of journalists on this beat, which has sort of taken form over the past few years when, mm-hmm. as we realized that it's, you know, this is a problem we're going to keep dealing with. Mm-hmm. A lot of us have had to... Um, alter how we behave online, you know, just taking more uh, steps towards digital security, um, you know, trying to make it harder to publish our family's addresses, which I've seen someone attempt with me, fail, but draw conclusions about where I live, which were incorrect. Um, So yeah, it's a, it's an ongoing thing. And it's because these people believe so passionately in what they, um, in their theory, and they believe that if you're writing something they disagree with, then you are uh, a malicious operative trying to silence them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I was curious, yeah, what their motivator is to to be cruel and to harass, so that somehow you are someone that they cannot trust, and you're going to impact what they're doing in a detrimental way, so they need to stop you. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, I think that there's also something, and I'm not saying this across the board, but what I've seen is there's something regressive about some of these communities where there is bullying and you kind of feel like you're on um, schoolyard again. uh, And you're wondering, aren't these people adults and they're not really acting like adults? So what's been your experience? Oh, it's been really strange. Um, I mean, because usually... Usually when I sit down face-to-face with someone, we can have a normal conversation. And that's what I keep thinking about when I see one of these, you know, avatars tweeting something unhinged at me or, you know, wrapping me into a conspiracy theory. I'm like, you know, you're probably someone's mom. You know, we, we could have a conversation in real life, but 
it's it's a very strange dynamic to try and you know guess at their interiority. I think when when I think about this phenomenon, the weirdest one is um, it hasn't happened to me. It's uh, part of um, a book that a British writer Hussein Kasvani wrote, where he uh, he's Muslim in the UK and he got this guy who's just constantly harassing him on Twitter, accusing him of being part of all these uh, shadowy Muslim plots to take over Britain and yada, yada. And so what Hussein did is he said, hey, do you want to meet up? And he went to this guy's home, learned all about his life alone, where, you know, he's living on mustard sandwiches. And the only thing that he's really doing is tweeting and getting that vitriol out. And the guy finally seemed to kind of click that, oh, I'm, I'm harassing a real person. And then Hussein left, and about a month later, the guy resumed harassing him on Twitter. So it is weird. It's um, I mean, something like that. You're the you're the expert, not me, but it seems like something almost pathological, and mm-hmm. it's, it's a very weird relationship they have with you. It is. Uh, th- there's an intensity that you sometimes can uh, be shocked with, uh, and there's a humorlessness also, and. I mean, I I made the mistake a couple times of just making an offhand comment or kind of joking, and that was not received well. Uh, and so there is this, you know, we are doing something of ultimate seriousness, and this is pivotal for the planet. And so no joking allowed. And have you found there's that intensity and seriousness too? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um, I, yeah. I, it makes it sometimes difficult to report on flat earth conferences because at a base level, I I do find some humor in them. Um, And then, so that kind of accidentally informs some of my conversations, you know, I'm like, you, you want to have a little bit of a laugh with some people and some people are good natured about it. And some people are dead serious and you realize that you don't even have the same footwork for a conversation. So that's a little jarring. That's something I have to keep, tinkering with when I talk to people. Mm. But oh yeah, no, there's a real humorlessness to it. Um I used to joke a lot more on Twitter. I still do sometimes. And recently I joked that Dobby the house elf from Harry Potter is a communist. And I just got uh, the people just this vitriol saying, you're a real journalist, huh? Wow, a real journalist wouldn't say that. I'm like, I'm a person. I'm making a joke about a fictional elf. Like people take offense when it seems like you're not taking them seriously. Oh, interesting. So being taken seriously. So for a lot of people, that is going to be what is so satisfying about this, that they're going to be taken seriously, that they have their finger on the pulse of something that is really important to know that a lot of people don't know. So I I do think that for some people, they do think that this is giving them confidence and making them feel, I think, justified in how they're behaving, because there can be kind of a self-righteousness and an entitlement that goes along with this. And like sometimes within certain communities, you're going to see lovely kind of salt of the earth people, but other times probably a lot of hubris. And so I don't know if you've dealt face to face with that. Oh yeah. Flat Earth and QAnon, maybe especially QAnon are two where I think the theory has allowed people who don't have much else going on in their lives to now feel like they're saving the world. Mm. QAnon believes that it's saving children from, I think, like satanic pedophilia and cannibalism, but also in a very pro-Trump way. Um, And you can actually go back sometimes. I like to scroll through people's uh, social media to see kind of who they were before this. And you can see people living just, you know, very normal lives, not bragging about too much. Um, Maybe they have things that they're proud of that they're not showcasing, but not showcasing a lot of pride on social media. And when they make that switch, suddenly there's this self-importance and there's this, you know, crusading attitude where this theory has now given them a reason to you know, to live and to be motivated. And of course, if you believe that children are being eaten, yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna get really passionate about that. So it lets people feel like they're doing something of the utmost importance when really what they're doing is, you know, tweeting weird images at journalists. Right. I know that uh, when you're talking about white supremacists, I mean, that, that can be very frightening. Um, I, years ago, was in Louisiana and was taking some tour of the bayou. And the 
cab driver. Well, we passed by a sign that had um, a picture of David Duke on it because he was running for mayor or governor or something at the time. And I shuddered when I saw his face as this grand wizard uh, at the time. And the cab driver said, you got to love a man who says what we're all thinking. And I thought, I'm not thinking that at all. I'm now thinking a lot about you, the cab driver. Uh, but that there is this sense that that there's kind of an undercurrent sometimes of anger and or racism, anti-Semitism, and they kind of like that there are these groups that will sort of speak for them and get that message out that they that they somehow believe in. But I've also worked with people who have been involved in communities that were like white supremacist meeting communities, and they were raised that way, and that's not who they are at all. When they had a chance to leave the community, they realized that was just how they were kind of controlled to think, but that the basis of their teaching and their adherence to it was fear. And so how have you noticed that that's also been woven into your research and the communities um, that, it, that they kind of do a lot of fear mongering and what are the things that they're made to feel afraid of? I think white supremacist communities are very driven by the fear of losing status and losing power. Um, sometimes they will present themselves as already having lost power. There's a big um, meme that you see a lot among younger white supremacists, usually those who follow more like a blood and soil, back to the land thing, saying um, they'll, they'll post a picture of like a wheat field and a man standing next to his wife and their children and says, remember what they took from you. Basically saying that um, it's, a, it's an appeal to young men who feel disenfranchised and saying, the reason you are not this, you know, emblem of 1950s masculinity is because somebody has taken it from you. And of course, the implications, you know, Jews, people of color, feminists, what have you. But they really weave in a fear of losing status even more so than they claim white people already have. Um, or if um, if they're not appealing to those disenfranchised young men, they'll say that, you know, People of color are a threat to what you already have. I mean, there are all throughout American history, there was this um, completely false trope of sexual assault by men of color against white women. We know that to be just trumped up, right. uh, basically a meme, you know, in the in the classic sense of the term. But yeah, I mean, that's what that's what drove Klan recruiting for a long time was this idea that you as a white man, usually a white man, but sometimes white women needed to fear people of color, fear the outsider because they are coming to harm you. They're coming to take something from you. Ah, okay. Okay. I was curious if you've noticed particular trends right now in this world that people need to watch out for. I mean, I know I've heard about people like Owen Benjamin and other people who are very virulent and awful and dangerous, I think. So tell me about particular movements or groups for people to watch out for. Oh, Benjamin actually just spoke at a Flat Earth conference. Very funny, very anti-Semitic. You know, and supposedly he was kicked off Alex Jones' show mm -hmm. for being too over-the-top anti-Semitic. So if that doesn't paint a picture, uh, I don't know what does. Anyway, go ahead. I worry a lot about conspiratorial health movements right now. And it's very fitting. Everybody is in a panic right now. But there are a lot of health alt health movements that um some of them don't seem to be wacky on their face but can have very disastrous results so you know i mentioned people going out and buying this medication even though there's no compelling science behind it we're also seeing things um like women turning to alternative midwives which women trying to have babies at home and there's some really compelling reasons for that like we have terrible health care in this country, and it's very expensive to go to a hospital. So some women want to avoid that. But a lot of them are sort of seated with this um, anti-establishment rhetoric saying, you don't want to be in a hospital. Uh, Those doctors don't know what's, what's best for you. And like I keep saying, this sort of exists along a spectrum where um, there, you know, that is one of the more mild ones, but there are um, some of the 
media organizations promoting that also promote things saying that like you can cure an autistic child by giving them bleach. That's not true. Um, but it's, yeah, it's terrifying. Mm. Um, and then some of the alt health hubs, like there's a site called natural news will promote some of the uh, less extreme things like that, but get into just wildly racist and actively harmful publications. So what I worry about are the um, sort of the tendrils of this, Mm. the less uh, obviously fringe health ideas that people can start buying into and that sort of pull them further away from conventional wisdom into a movement that's, you know, quite virulent and I think very scary. That is a really good point about health. And I think sometimes people then will not go and get the help they need because they think they already are. And so they will ignore symptoms. A lot of these fraudulent uh, snake oil salesmen will say, you know, if your symptoms get worse, it's because, you know, it's coming out of your system. We're helping you detox this and that's why you're feeling worse. And it could be that you're feeling worse because the medication's not working or it's making you sicker. Um, But they already sort of justify your negative reaction to it. And they're, they're very clever about that sort of presentation, unfortunately. Uh, And so I want people to be able to look out for your book when it comes out. What can you tell us about it? Um, The title is Off the Edge. Uh, It's about the flat earth movement. I do not know when it's coming out. I'm still writing it. Um, But make no mistake, I'm going to be promoting it a lot when it is available. And so what else about your work? Where can people find you and the work that you're creating and that you've created? Uh, I'm a reporter at The Daily Beast, so you can find me pretty regularly there. And I am extremely on Twitter, where I promote a lot of my work. My handle is uh, just my name. It's Kelly Weil. And I'm often tweeting about exactly this kind of thing. Mm. Okay. Well, it's fascinating, and it's so wonderful and important and really interesting. And I wish you well, and I'm sorry that you're getting harassed. It is par for the course, unfortunately. But I know you're going to get a lot more support than harassment. And thank you so much for making the time today. And I wish you well with your book and I can't wait to buy it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Take good care. All right. You too. One more thing before you go. From the secret societies that control the world to the fact that The moon landing was a hoax to the 9-11 cover-ups, the reptilian elite, the Holocaust revisionism and denial. George Soros is behind many nefarious plots, even though truth is he's a lovely liberal man who is a philanthropist, which I, I really have never understood that whole thing. I've never understood actually most of these, but that one and also Holocaust denial, I have to say. Communists poisoning our water supply, chemtrails, all these unseen villains and poisons and top-secret plots. So what are conspiracy theories? The theory that an event or a phenomenon occurs as a result of a conspiracy between parties. Some covert but very powerful entity or organization seems to be responsible for an unexplained event a big event. And the mission here, I think, is to make sure that they don't take control away from you and keep you in the dark. A conspiracy theory is the explanation for an event or situation that for whatever reason invokes a worry that something sinister is going on or we're being lied to in a major way. These theories resist falsification. They also resist proof. That's why they stick around, and that's why they grow and morph and change, but just don't go away. Margaret Singer, the expert on cults and undue influence, someone who I'd heard speak many years ago at cult conferences, she said that when you're involved in kind of cult-like thinking, you learn to deny the evidence of your senses. I see that happening time and time again in these organizations. And the ideas are reinforced by circular reasoning. So both evidence against the conspiracy and the lack of evidence for it are somehow evidence of its truth. Now, talk about head spinning. 
So you then go on blind faith and the need to believe it rather than waiting for it to be proven or disproven is much more important. In fact, it's the only thing that matters. They used to appeal only to a fringe group, but now are commonplace in mass media, even though I think that they were really commonplace to a great degree throughout history. The idea that the Jews killed Christ, the idea of the blood libel, many other accusations and beliefs about all cultures and ethnicities and religions at one time or another on a very grand, very destructive scale. Conspiracy theories are usually anti-government, anti-establishment. A man named Jesse Walker, who works for Reason magazine, has written books also on paranoia and conspiracy theories. He defines five different kinds of conspiracy theories. One, he says, is the enemy outside. These figures are scheming out there against you on the inside. The second one is the enemy within. People are lurking among you, somehow very much a part of you, but you can't distinguish them from other ordinary citizens. The third one is the enemy above. Powerful people manipulating events for their own gain. And the fourth, the enemy below, the lower classes working to overturn the social order. And then one that I'm not as familiar with, but I was happy to learn from Jesse Walker, the benevolent conspiracy. Angelic forces are working behind the scenes to improve the world and help people. I suppose the key here is that you just need to believe in these angelic forces for their power to work and to protect you. But notice how many times in the last five descriptions, the words enemy came up and forces and protection and secret are used. Those are so integral to the philosophy and to the psychology of these groups and the people in them. According to the political scientist Michael Barkin, the appeal of conspiracy theories is threefold. They appear to make sense out of a world that is otherwise confusing, and I would add, a world that sometimes feels very frightening. The second is the appeal to people in a single way by dividing the world between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. It's quite simple. They trace all evil back to a single source, the conspirators and their agents, whoever they are, whoever they're told by the people they trust that they are. And the third is that they're presented as special and secret knowledge. These theories are something only a few people are lucky enough to tap into. And so for conspiracy theorists, the masses are a brainwashed herd. And those who have tapped into what they see as the truth, well, they can congratulate themselves for penetrating the plotters' deceptions and being smarter than them, being a step ahead. It also seems that the smaller the minority believing in the specific theory, the more appealing it is to conspiracy theorists. And if the perceived masterminds behind the lies and evildoing are seen as hostile and an ongoing threat, the conspiracy theorists feel reassurance and safety through adhering to the theory, because then the sources of all human difficulties are uncovered. And then people are calmed by being able to know the cause, because then you know how to protect yourself, and people usually prefer explanations rather than having to deal with the anxiety and insecurity of encountering random and unpredictable and unexplainable events. The problem, of course, and there are many, is that it's a form of scapegoating, and it makes the group doing the scapegoating, the finger-pointing group, be seen as the heroes, the protectors, the wise ones. And once you're involved in a group that all points their fingers at the same source, whether it's aliens or the government, Jews, blacks, anyone, gays, you are bolstered by communal reinforcement of that message. And there is no room left or interest in questioning if you're right or the group you're connected to is right. In fact, you'll be met with anger or, at the very least, pity for your silly close-mindedness if you decide to question any of it at any point. Of course, my suggestion would always be to question away. Roger Cohen, writing in the New York Times, says that captive minds resort to conspiracy theory because 
It's the ultimate refuge of the powerless, i.e. if you can't change your own life, it must be because some greater force controls the world and controls your safety and controls the information you get. And unfortunately, the events that make the biggest impact from the JFK assassination to climate change to COVID-19 to the next big thing that attracts the greatest attention, well, they also attract the myth makers. And they always will. We are interesting people, endlessly interesting to me. And I would have a sociologically distant and kind of entertained way of looking at this if it didn't get dangerous, if there didn't have to be an enemy. That's when it gets so destructive for others, and that's when I care about this so much because there is the need to protect people from those who don't want to solve the problem, really, but are energized and feel vindicated when they find the most convenient scapegoat. And I see that actually as destructive, but also juvenile. And I also think it keeps people blind. It keeps people blind to the fact that maybe there isn't the source of evil, or maybe that's the wrong source. And it redirects people's attention. But there's no arguing. There's no arguing with conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists. And it reminds me of a quote by Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, where he says, ideological certainty easily degenerates into an insistence upon ignorance. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's radio public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.